Let us pray. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably upon thy whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery, and by the tranquil operation of thy perpetual providence, carry out the work of man's salvation, that things which were cast down may be raised up, and that all things may return into unity through him by whom all things were made, even thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, welcome back. Um, We are in Revelation. End of chapter 2 today, beginning of chapter 3 today. We didn't actually finish our look at the church in Thyatira, so we're going to do that today. We'll do that uh, as briefly and as quickly as we can, and then we'll move on to the church in Sardis. So if you have your Bibles, you'll want to take a look at Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. And then we'll move on later on to chapter 3 and to the church in Sardis. Again, looking at these churches in the book of Revelation, which are meant to be a description of the church universal, and we're supposed to ask the question, which church are we uh, in the midst of this? We would like to think that we're the church in Philadelphia. God forbid that we're the church in Laodicea. But we need to take a good hard look at that. That's why these letters have been written. Well, you need to understand what Jesus has to say to the churches, and by consequence to us. So Revelation chapter 2, let's go ahead and read through the church in Thyatira one more time. I'm not going to go back and repeat everything that I said last week, but I do want to talk about what is the remedy for such a church. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works. I know your love, your faith, your service your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is to teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We said last week that this church in Thyatira is a church that has a number of things going for it. Uh, We notice that it has been Jesus' general pattern. He doesn't do this with all the churches, but the general pattern here is, even if he has a criticism against the church, he always begins with some word of praise. He always finds something to commend. And in the case of the church in Thyatira, he commends them for a number of things, for their love, for their works, for their faith, for their service, and for their patient endurance. 
And those are all wonderful things. We said that when Paul, in that great chapter in 1 Corinthians, talks about divine love, he says, Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three things, but the greatest of these is love. Well, it's interesting that two of those things are listed here as marks of the church in Thyatira, love and faith. They are both there. They are part of that church. And yet, even though the church has a number of things to its credit, there is one thing in particular, at least, that Jesus is very critical of, and that is that this fact is the church, that this church has been following the teachings of that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing many of my servants to practice two things, sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, we said that anybody that had any knowledge of the Old Testament would have known exactly what this was a reference to. Jezebel, of course, was that ancient queen in the Old Testament at the time of Elijah, a very wicked woman. Uh, she married King Ahab of Israel, and she brought with her all of her foreign gods, uh, the Baals, and she seduced the people into worshiping these gods. We would call it syncretism today, sort of a, a mixing of the faith of Israel with all of these other religions. And, and that's what we have in our culture today. Many people will say, well, if you want to follow Jesus, that's perfectly fine. I particularly want to follow Buddha, or I want to follow whoever it is, or, or maybe I just want to believe in Mother Earth. And so we sort of mix all of these things together. How many of you have seen that bumper sticker that says tolerance? You know, and it has all of the symbols for all of the different religions. That, that's syncretism. That's modern syncretism today. And apparently that's part of the problem in this church. It was a church that had received the gospel, but now false teaching had managed to find its way into the life of the church, and it was mixing with all of the wonderful things that were taking place there in Thyatira. But it was like a cancer, Jesus says. Now we think if you've got a cancer and it's only in your toe, well, don't worry about it, because at least it's not in some major organ of the body. It's not in the pancreas or in the liver or in the lungs or something like that. If it's in the toe, well, you could just leave it alone, perhaps. But of course, the problem with cancer, whatever the type it is, is that it doesn't stay there for very long, doesn't it? It metastasizes. It, it spreads to another part of the body, and before long, you realize that you've got a serious problem. And that was the problem for this church in Thyatira. It was accommodating false teachers among the orthodox teachers. The example that I used last week, and I think he's a really tragic example. I did not use him as somebody that we need to excoriate. I, I, excoriate. I gave him as an example of somebody who I think is one of the most tragic figures in modern times, and that was Bishop Pike, who was the Bishop of California in the 1960s. What was so tragic about Bishop Pike is that he had a lot of disappointments in his life. Um, a, a lot of loss in his life. And in the midst of all of that, he began to lose his faith. And what the church needed to do was, rather than just sort of turn him loose, what the church really needed to do was to have compassion on him and gently bring him back into the fold. Um, I actually had a um, classmate at um, Virginia Seminary when I was there who left the Episcopal Church and ultimately joined the Roman Catholic Church. And we got to be good friends, and I'll tell you, he was a man who was struggling with his sexuality. He was gay. And um, I asked him why he was leaving the Episcopal Church for the Roman Catholic Church. And the answer he gave me was, he said, because he knew in his heart of hearts, having been raised in a Christian home, that the things that he was struggling with were genuine struggles, and that he knew that God was either calling him to be married or God was calling him to a life of purity. 
And he said as he struggled with this, he had turned to a priest in the Episcopal Church and asked for advice on how do I deal with this? How do, how do I live a life that God wants me to live? And he said, the Episcopal priest told me that I should just embrace my lifestyle and live it out. And he said, the problem was I knew in my heart of hearts that I could not do that. And he said, I went to the Roman Catholic priest in desperation one night. He said, I actually entered a confessional booth and I confessed what I was struggling with to the, to the Catholic priest. And the Catholic priest said, we are here to help you and to support you and to help you live a life of celibacy if that's what God has called you to. And he said, you know why I'm leaving the Episcopal Church? He said, I felt like I came to the church in my hour of need and I was patted on the head, and these were his words exactly, and sent to play in the traffic. As opposed to the church coming around me, supporting me, giving me courage and the strength that I would need to live the life that God had called me to live. I think that was the problem for this church in Thyatira. It was accommodating all of this false teaching. And as a consequence, Jesus has some very harsh words to speak to it. He has praise initially, but he says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. Well, you can imagine what that would have been in the Greco-Roman world. And to eat food sacrificed to idols. This, of course, had been a huge issue for Christians in those early days, particularly in this kind of a pagan environment where they would be invited to a home and asked to sit down and eat food that had been sacrificed to a pagan deity. And while Paul says that an idol is no thing and you can eat whatever is put before you, the problem here is that they weren't even questioning. There was not even a matter of conscience in the church in Thyatira. People were just going ahead and doing all of these things, embracing all of these false practices, mixing paganism along with Christianity. And what is Jesus' words? He says, I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. What do you do with a church that has compromised the gospel? What do you, what do, you do with a church that has allowed pagan teaching or false teaching to creep into its corporate life? Jesus' remedy, and remember, Jesus always provides a remedy for these churches that are in trouble. The first thing he says that they need to do in verse 21 is he says they need to repent. Now he says, I gave her time to repent. That indicates that they'd already been encouraged to repent, had not done it. But obviously this is part of the solution. Jesus says they need to repent. That is to say they need to acknowledge that what they've been doing is wrong. That's a hard thing for us to do as human beings. We don't like to admit that we're wrong. When, when somebody accuses you of something and you know you're guilty, how many of you have ever been there? Somebody comes up and you said, you did this to me and you know you're guilty. What normally is our first response to that? We get defensive, don't we? And we try to what? Make excuse for our actions. Well, there were extenuating circumstances. Let me explain to you why it was that I did what I did and that's why I'm excused. That's not repentance, my friends. Repentance is acknowledging that you're wrong, that you did wrong, and it means to turn, to forsake, to go in a new direction. It means literally to do a 180. That's the first thing that Jesus says that this church needs to do. It needs to acknowledge. If it's going to survive, it needs to acknowledge that it's done wrong. 
that these false teachers are just that. They are false teachers. The reason I say Bishop Pike is such a tragic figure is what would have happened if the church had really disciplined him? You know, there's a difference between discipline and punishment. We, we think that discipline is, is, is a bad thing these days. But discipline is not a bad thing. The scripture says that God disciplines those he loves. Love is discipline. It's not meant to tear down, it's meant to build up. Remember that passage in which Paul speaks about, if you treat somebody with kindness, you will heap burning coals upon their heads? How many of you remember that expression? Now, many people think what that means is, what you just need to do is kill them with kindness. If, if, if you treat them well, eventually God's going to get them in the end, burning coals upon their heads. That's not what that passage means at all. In the ancient world, as a sign of repentance, when you realize you've done wrong and you've turned around and you've come back, as a sign of repentance, people would put on sackcloth and ashes. And they would oftentimes take a pan of burning coals and place it on their head as a sign that they were sorry. So when Paul says, you want to do this that they may heap burning coals upon their heads, it's not punishment for them. It's the hopes that they will realize the error of their way and come back. It's the story of the prodigal son, my friends. Isn't that the story? In which we're told that there was this son who went out and squandered his father's inheritance. He treated his father shamefully. He said, I want my inheritance. In the ancient world, to say, I want my inheritance before you die is to say, I wish you were dead. And he goes off into a far country and he squanders everything that he has on loose living. And he descends to a very low place, so low in fact that he's eating the pods and feeding the pigs. But we're told at one point he did what? He came to his senses. He came to his right mind and he realized that this was his own fault. He couldn't blame anybody else, couldn't blame his father, couldn't blame his brother, couldn't blame his friends who deserted him. He had to blame himself. There was only one who was responsible. And having come to his senses, what did he do? He turned around and he went home. And he begged for mercy. And what he discovered was that there was a loving father who had gone out every day on the street and was ready to welcome him back, put a ring on his finger, a mantle about his shoulders, kill the fatted calf, and welcome the son home. That's repentance, my friends. And that's what Jesus says this church needs to do. It needs to repent. This is a continuous gospel refrain. And let me tell you something. Repentance is not a one-time act. There may be that one moment in your life when you realize you're really messed up, you've never been in fellowship with Christ, and you repent and turn to the Lord like the Apostle Paul did on the road to Damascus. But let me tell you something, unless you're better than I am, repentance is a daily act. We are constantly in the process of repenting. That's what Martin Luther said. Because we are constantly in the process of sinning, aren't we? We are simo ustas et peccator. We are at the same time sinners and yet justified. So this is a continuous gospel refrain. What happens if they refuse to acknowledge that they're on the wrong path and turn around, do a 180 and come back? Well, Jesus makes it very clear. There will be judgment. We don't like to think about this because we think of Jesus as meek and mild. Jesus who has endless compassion, and indeed he does. There is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea, but nevertheless... He is also a God of holiness. He is a God of justice. And the church, that was that colic that I read just a moment ago. The church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. 
God is using the church to work out His purposes on earth. What happens if the instrument that God is using to bring salvation to the world gets corrupted? Then the instrument can't be used anymore, you see. And so God takes seriously corruption in the life of His church, and if He sees it, He will do what? If the people do not repent, eventually He will, He says, bring judgment. And look at the judgment that He says is going to come upon this church. He says, verse 22, But I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. We ask the question, would God really do that? Would God really carry out judgment on His people? Well, it's not a theoretical question, because there are historical examples of God doing just that. One of the greatest examples is in Acts chapter 5. In the early days of the church, the story of two A man and a woman, husband and a wife, by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. How many of you remember that story? Most of you do, okay. Story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's the early days of the church. The church is growing, but of course, as the church grows, opposition grows to it as well. The church was primarily centered in Jerusalem. It was a poor church. Um, Paul makes that point. He says, not many of you were wise, not many of you were noble, not many of you were of great birth. He said, but God chooses the shameful things, the lowly things, the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. So the early Christians were poor people. I mean, think about the disciples themselves. With the exception of Paul, who appears on the scene later, the early Christians were just common fisher folk, weren't they? They were not highly educated. They didn't have Ivy League educations. They didn't have money, position, power. They didn't have any of those things. God took the shameful things to shame the wise that he might receive the glory and not men. So in those early days, they were a poor church in Jerusalem. But there was a man, and his name was Joseph. He was a Levite. He was from the Isle of Cyprus. And he had compassion for his fellow believers in the church in Jerusalem. And so we're told he went off and he sold a piece of property. Now, when I imagine him selling this piece of property, I imagine him selling a piece of deep water property. All right, Because he gets a good amount of money for this. And he takes the proceeds, and he lays the proceeds at the disciples' feet. Now, nobody told him to do this. Nobody asked him to do this. As far as we know, he saw the needs of his brothers and sisters, and he could not live with it. And so he went out and he did something about it. He relieved their suffering. And so he brings this money, a huge amount of money, lays it at the disciples' feet, and he said, it's for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And they are so overwhelmed with this. They said, oh, my goodness, Joseph, this is a marvelous thing. We can't call you Joseph. You you deserve a better name. Your name is Barnabas. The word Barnabas means son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas was. He was a son of encouragement, a man filled with the Holy Ghost and faith, an encourager. Don't we need encouragers in the church today? Oftentimes the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. We need encouragers in the church, and that's what Joseph or Barnabas was. Well, over there, sitting on the side of the church, behind pillar number three, was this husband and wife. And uh, they didn't like the fact that Barnabas got all this praise from the apostles. And one turned to the other and said, you know, we got that piece of property. I don't think it's worth much. It's not on the deep water. I'm not even sure it will perk. 
So what we need to do is we, we need to sell that piece of property and, and we'll come and give the money to the church and maybe they'll praise us as well. And so that's what they did. When they went and sold the property, however, what they discovered was that it was worth more than they anticipated. So they came and brought a portion of the proceeds to the church. But they held the rest back for themselves. Now, initially they said, look, we're going to give it all to the church. But when they realized how much it was worth, well, they held some of it back for themselves and they brought it to the apostles and Peter looked at them and he says, well, thank you very much. My goodness, that's very kind. Is this what you received for the property? At which point Ananias says, um, <clears throat> yes, my, my, as a matter of fact, it is. And Peter knew in his spirit it was a lie. And he turns to Ananias and he said, you've not lied to us, you've lied to God the Holy Spirit. And we're told at that very moment he dropped dead on the floor. Dropped dead. And as they were carrying him out, in walks his wife. She doesn't know what's happened. And Peter says, well, Ananias has just been here and he's just given us this money and it's, it's, it's generous fun. Is this all that you got for the property? And Sapphira said, uh, yes, it is. <laughs> and Peter says, the men who just carried out your husband, feet first, are coming back and they're going to carry you out as well. And she dropped dead. And the next verse says, and the whole church was filled with fear. I'll bet. <laughs> That's what you call a stewardship program, folks, let me tell you. That is a stewardship program to beat them all. And you say, well, my goodness, that was rather harsh for a, a little white lie. See, it wasn't a little white lie. This is the church in those earliest days. If God allows his people to lie and to be corruptible, well, then it won't be long before this, this whole Christian thing, which was just being launched, would never get off the ground at all. It would die in its crib. Same reason why Paul told the Corinthians that many of them were getting sick and dying because they were taking Holy Communion unworthily. Think about that, taking communion unworthily. We are told that if we have anything against our brother, we should not come to the communion rail. We should first go and be reconciled to our brother and then come and offer our gifts. Well, evidently, the church in Corinth was not doing that. They were fighting with each other. They were suing with each other. They were devouring each other left and right. And yet they were still taking Holy Communion and in so doing, defaming the Lord's Supper. And the result, Paul said, is that many of them had become sick and some had died. So it's not a theoretical question. Will God judge the church? Well, we've got historical examples of God doing just that. So what do you do with an apostate church? Well, the first thing you do is you call them to repentance, to stop what they're doing, to turn around and come back before it's too late. But if they refuse to repent, what will happen to them? Judgment will come. Now there is... A silver lining in the midst of all of these dark clouds here at the end of chapter 2 in this church in Thyatira. Because Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. What that tells us is that while some in the church had been corrupted, 
not everybody had. There was, and there often is, a faithful remnant. Those who are contending for the faith. They may be few in number, but they are there. And what is Jesus' advice to those who are the faithful remnant in the midst of an apostate church? Well, he says, hold on. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean hold on forever. This has nothing to do with whether you stay in that church or you leave that church. We're going to talk about that next when we get to the church in Sardis. But what he is saying is that in the midst of all of this, even though everybody else is going the way of the world, you are to hold fast to what you have been taught. Even if everybody else goes the way of the world, you hold fast to what you have been taught. You do not give up. What does it mean? Well, it means to hold fast to two things in particular. God's word. That is what they have been taught. But the second thing is this, because part of the problem in the church in Thyatira was sexual immorality. They were not only to hold fast to what they had been taught, they were to hold fast to what they knew was right behavior. Right behavior. Keep your fingers there in Revelation and turn back to the left to 1 Corinthians for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because... He had a problem like this in the church in Corinth, and Paul had addressed it. Here's what he says, beginning at verse 12. He said, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. But God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, and God raised the Lord, and God will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know, I'm going to quote this in the sermon today, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, which of course is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So those who had not been corrupted were to what? To remember what they had been taught, the faith once delivered to the saints. And the second thing they were to remember was that their bodies were temples of God, the Holy Spirit. They were not their bodies anymore. They had been bought with a price. There's one more little bit of good news for those who do repent or for those who haven't been corrupted but are holding on, for both of them. Jesus says there's a promise to those who overcome, verses 26 and following. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who repent... See, there's always a chance to repent. As long as you've got breath in your body, there's a chance to stop. In the case of the thief on the cross, it came at the very last moment, but he repented, didn't he? 
He turned to the other thief and he said, How dare you rail against this man? He's innocent. We're here because we deserve it. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he turned to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, he was acknowledging that he was wrong, that Jesus was the king. If I had the time to live over, I would live differently. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So to those who repent and to those who are holding on, holding fast, Jesus gives a promise. Two things. First of all, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to take them in reverse order. First of all, he says, I'm going to give you the morning star. What's the morning star? Well, if you read through the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ is described as the morning star. In other words, I will give you Jesus Christ. This is the hope of heaven. You will have the privilege of walking with the morning star for all eternity. That's the first promise to those who repent, to hold fast to the end, who persevere. I will give you Jesus Christ himself, the very thing your hearts long for. Second thing he says is, I will give you authority over the nations. My friends, if we are Christians, if we are believers, if we persevere to the end and are saved, here's the good news. We don't simply get to live with Christ. We reign with Christ. We are seated with him in glorious majesty, above the angels and the archangels and all the company of heaven, you and I not only live with Christ, we reign with Christ for all eternity. That's the promise to the church, that even if it's corrupted, if it repents and comes back, there is the promise of glory, glory indescribable. I can think of a great many mainline Protestant denominations that have a wonderful heritage, that had done great things for the sake of the gospel, that have forsaken their truth, the truth that they have been taught, forsaken, like the church in Ephesus, their first love. And I pray for their repentance on a daily basis. Because if they turn and they come back, the promise is that God will restore them as he restored the prodigal son. The message is simple. Reject Jezebel and gain Christ. Serve Christ on earth and reign with Christ in glory. That's Jesus' words to a church like the church in Thyatira, a church that has been corrupted. It needs to deal with its problems. It needs to discipline those who are wayward. It needs to repent of its wickedness and return to the Lord, and He will give them the morning star. Well, that brings us then to the church in Sardis. And we've only got Nine minutes or so. Maybe 14 minutes, I guess, depending upon who's counting. Let's go ahead and read through chapter 3, beginning at the first verse. And I don't know how far we'll get, but we'll get started. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You'll notice this is how Jesus generally begins these letters to the churches. I know your works. In the case of the church in Ephesus, I know your hard work. In the church of Smyrna, I know your suffering. Even in the church in Thyatira, what? I know your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. I know your works. Well, he says something very similar to the church in Sardis. You know, one of the things that um, teachers are taught early on is that if you're going to critique a child's essay, 
always try to find something positive to say before you say something negative. Even if the only thing you have to say is, well, my goodness, that's a wonderful color of ink that you're using. <laughs> but, 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 but try to find something positive to say to the child before. And what we've noticed is that Jesus has, for the most part, followed that pattern in addressing these churches here in Revelation until you get to Sardis. And then all of a sudden what you discover is that Jesus doesn't have much good to say to them at all. I know your works. Yes, yes, what are our works? You have a reputation for being alive. Yes, yes, we are. But you're dead. That's what Jesus says to this church. I know your works. I know Ephesus' works. I know Smyrna's works, I know Thyatira's works, Pergamum's works, I know your works as well. You have a reputation for being alive. The world looks at you and says, there is a church that is thriving, but I know that in reality you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." What was the problem for the church here in Sardis? The church in Thyatira was a corrupted church. The church in Sardis is a dead church. It was spiritually dead. What was Sardis like at the time that John wrote this letter? Well, it was a city that was living on the fumes of its former grandeur. Some years ago, I took a trip to Egypt. And I confess, even as a little boy, I had always found books and uh, things about Egypt to be fascinating. Egypt always seemed to me to be such an exotic sort of place. I'd always longed to go to Egypt. The Egyptians always fascinated me. And so when I had the opportunity to go some years ago uh, to Egypt, we went down from Israel through the Sinai Peninsula, which helped me to understand why the Israelites complained so much, by the way. I had a lot more compassion for them. There is nothing out there but stones and scorpions. It's a miserable sort of place. But we were headed down to Egypt, and I was so excited to see Egypt and to see Cairo. I was going to see the pyramids and the great museums and the Sphinx and all of that. And let me tell you something. It was the most disappointing place I've ever been in my entire life. It is a city and a country of abject poverty and filth. It's the dirtiest place I've ever been in my entire life. Little beggars on the street. There was one little boy. This was over 20 years ago, and I still remember his face to this day. One little boy coming up and begging for money. And I'll tell you, if I could have packed him up in my suitcase and taken him home, I would have done it. I don't care. But the guide said, do not give him any money. He's owned by another man up the street, and he's just going to take the money from him. It was a tragic situation. I went into this place expecting to see all the glory that was Egypt, but it was a past glory. This country ought to be wealthy on, on the money that comes out of the Suez, but it has a corrupted government 
And it is a tragic, tragic place. It was so disappointing. And I had a friend with me who had just lost his wife a few years before. And when he went there, he found Egypt to be the most depressing country he'd ever been. And he'd been all over the world. He said they are obsessed with nothing but their past. They are a country that has a glorious past, but they have no future whatsoever. That's a tragic, tragic story. Well, that was Sardis. Sardis had a glorious past, but by the time that John received this revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ, it was a place that was in decline. It was located 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. We said that these cities are set in a postman's circuit. In fact, one of the churches, the last one that we looked at, was actually on the imperial mail route. It was 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. It was 50 miles due east of Smyrna the Church of Suffering. In its past, it had been a magnificent place. In 1200 B.C., it had been the capital of the province of Lydia. It was situated on a high plateau 1,500 feet above the valley below. Now, by the time that John received the revelation, the city had enlarged. It was beyond uh, the Acropolis up there. It was spreading down into the valley below. But it was a place that in its early days was regarded as being virtually invincible. 1,500 feet up in the air, virtually impregnable. And yet here's the tragedy. It had been conquered twice. It had been conquered first by Cyrus of Persia in 549 B.C. And eventually by Antiochus, who was the successor of Alexander the Great in 218 B.C. Now in its heyday... At the height of its glory, it had a king who was almost mythical in his status, and his name was Croesus. How many of you have ever heard the expression, rich as Croesus? Well, this is the Croesus that's being referred to here. He was a man of immense wealth, and supposedly he told one of the philosophers in his court that his wealth made him extremely happy, to which the philosopher replied, no man can say he's happy until he's dead. But Croesus had enormous wealth, but he was a proud man. And when the Persians began to come against the Sardinian kingdom, the story goes that Croesus consulted the oracle at Delphi. He went to this oracle and he asked her for advice. And she said, well, I can tell you, if you go against Cyrus of Persia, you will destroy a great kingdom. And Croesus thought to himself, well, that's exactly what I want to do. And so he went out, he crossed the river, and he waged war against Cyrus of Persia. And he was soundly defeated. His men, what were left of them, had to retreat to that hilltop fortress. He had indeed destroyed a great kingdom, but it had been his own. Now they went through a series of different rulers after that time period. In A.D. 17, the city was completely destroyed by an earthquake. By John's time, as I said, it was a city in decline. We would say they were too poor to paint, too proud to whitewash. A city living off of its former grandeur. A church had been established in this church in Sardis, probably... Uh, in the same time that these other churches have been established, we're told that when Paul was ministering in Asia, in Ephesus in particular, that the word of the Lord spread throughout the entire province. And probably as a result of Paul's time that he spent in Ephesus, up to three years, the gospel made its way to Sardis. 
and a church was established there. By the time that John is writing, however, that church reflected the city. The church lacked energy and it lacked concern. It appeared to be physically alive. We would say the doors were open and the lights were on, but basically nobody was home. It was a spiritually dead place. Now, what's Jesus' charge against the church in Sardis? The charge against them is that they have a reputation for being alive. You know any churches like that that have a reputation for being alive, but the gospel is not preached? Mission work is not being done? It's interesting to note there was no great heresy that is mentioned here of this church in Sardis. Now, there were problems in other churches. Remember the error of the Nicolaitans and the sin of Balaam and that woman Jezebel? Lots of churches had problems. This church doesn't appear to have any heresy. At least no particular heresy is mentioned. In fact, it has all the apparent signs of life. People are out there going about their business. Every now and then there's a Bible study. You know, they're having services on Sunday. So you say to yourself, well, why is it dead? I'll tell you why it's dead. Because it's not doing mission. The church in Sardis was what we would call a lovely chapel. Some years ago, I was in England, and I went to see Blenheim Palace. I don't know if you've, any of you have been to Blenheim Palace. It's a magnificent place. And the one thing that I wanted to see at Blenheim Palace was the chapel. I was told the chapel was absolutely spectacular, so I was dying to get into the chapel. It was the last spot on the tour. And so I got into the chapel, and oh my goodness, it was grotesque. The whole thing was dedicated to the Duke of Marlborough. There was a tiny little cross up there on an altar, and there was this magnificent, monumental image of the Duke of Marlborough. It was clear who the chapel was built for. It was not for the glory of King Jesus. It was for the glory of the Duke. And furthermore, nobody could go and worship there unless you were part of the Marlborough Churchill family. These chapels were not built to be churches for the community to come to. Only the family went there. It was a lovely little place to say your prayers, open your prayer book, receive communion once in a blue moon, and then go about your business. It was a chapel. It was not a church. Reminds me of something that C.T. Studd once said. C.T. Studd was one of England's great athletes in the early part of the 20th century. A remarkable man. He was a world-famous cricketer. And everybody believed that he had a very promising career before him in athletics. This was in the age of the muscular Christian, Eric Little and those fellows. And he had great, a great career ahead of him. He played rugby, he played cricket, he was just an extraordinary individual. Perfect human specimen. And he gave it all up and went into the mission field. And people were just devastated. They, they couldn't understand why. They said, why? Why do you want to do this? Can't you be a Christian and be a cricketer as well? And this was his response. He said, there are some people who want to live within earshot of the chapel bell. I want to run a rescue mission within a yard, within a yard of hell. Some people want to live within earshot of the chapel bell. I want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. That's the Christian life, my friends. That's what it's really all about. What's the difference between a swamp and a lake? A mountain lake. 
They both have water flowing into them. Do you ever notice that? Swamps have water flowing into them. Lakes have water flowing into them. The difference is this. Swamps don't have much water flowing out, do they? Lakes have the water that flows in, and the water that flows back out, it keeps them alive, teeming with life. A swamp has water flowing in, but nothing going back out, and it becomes stagnant. That was the church in Sardis. The gospel had been preached, but the gospel was not going forth from that place. It was not a mission station. It was a lovely chapel. Archbishop William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II, put it best. He said, the church is the only organization that exists for the sake of those who are not yet its members. Now, your investment group exists for the sake of its members, <laughs> its investors. The church is the only organization that exists for the sake of those who are not its members, but are not yet its members. Are there churches that are lovely little chapels where people go and they say their prayers, but no real life-changing work is taking place? Are we living within earshot of the chapel bell? Or are we running a rescue mission within a yard of hell? Well, if we are the chapel, my friends, and it can be a glorious chapel, like Blenheim Palace Chapel, but if we are a chapel, we are a church that is on the way to death. What do you do with a dead church? Come back next week and we'll talk about it. <laughs> We don't, have, we don't have Sunday school next Sunday? Oh, we don't have it next Sunday. So